MSW Media. On Wednesday morning, former Trump attorney Michael Cohen was sentenced to three years in prison. During the sentencing hearing, everyone in the courtroom, including the federal judge, concluded that Donald Trump directed him to commit crimes. On the same day, federal prosecutors in New York announced an agreement with the company that owns the National Enquirer. As part of that deal, the company agreed that the hush money payments that it facilitated were primarily designed to influence the election. One day earlier, Russian spy Maria Putina agreed to plead guilty and cooperate with all state and federal investigations, including the investigation headed by special counsel Robert Mueller. What do these latest revelations mean for the Trump presidency? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. All right, so Patty, ever since last Friday when... The prosecutors in New York filed a statement saying that Michael Cohen had been directed by Donald Trump to commit uh, these campaign finance violations. I've been you know, f- trying to think about what this means in a broader context. I mean, obviously, you know, it certainly has some significant impact. Uh, I talked about it. We discussed it with uh, Neil Cotel over the weekend. Um, but I, the question I think has been in my mind, what uh, where where does this lead us from here? Where does this where is this federal investigation going to go? And I penned a piece today in Politico magazine mm-hmm. uh, that really that I've been working on for a few days because uh, I've been trying to think about what this means. And essentially, what I say in there is that I think I agree with um, a lot of people, including Cohen's attorney in the sentencing uh, hearing today that said that they think the federal prosecutors in New York are working towards a much bigger target. Uh, There's no question that you don't give immunity to the Trump Organization CFO, Alan Weisselberg, or make this deal with the um, company that owned the National Enquirer, AMI, unless you're trying to work towards something bigger. And my take as to who that bigger figure would be is the person who is outlined in the Cohen charging document as Executive Two? I think we've, we started getting used to. We, we now we know Individual One. Now we got Executive Two. I was wondering about that. Why the distinction? Why they aren't all individuals? Why they're not all executives? But you know that is the Justice Department has no um, standard as to how exactly people are identified. I will tell you. I used to use letters: Individual A, B, oh. C. Uh, occasionally, I would. Um, I would um, have a further designations if the if the charging document was very complicated. Here they're using numbers. So executive one in the Cohen charging document is Weisselberg. And in the charging document, Weisselberg goes to somebody else in the Trump organization for approval for these payments that are false, that are disguised payments to Cohen. And this individual gives him permission to get the money from, quote, the trust, unquote. So who is that person? Who would the CFO have to go to for approval? It appears likely to me that it's Donald Trump Jr., mm-hmm. given that he's the trustee of the president's trust, Donald Trump's trust. Um, but it could be Eric Trump or somebody else very high level. You know, what you could imagine coming out of this is an indictment of that person, whether it's Donald Trump Jr. or somebody else at a high level in the Trump organization, naming the, the president, Donald Trump, as an unindicted co-conspirator. Now, some of you who are listening to this might be wondering, wait, I thought everyone's been telling me that Donald Trump already is an unindicted co-conspirator. And what I would say is he's close. I mean, what would happen is the federal prosecutor said he directed Cohen to commit a crime. That itself would mean that he was committing a crime in doing that. They said that in a filing. 
But what an unindicted co-conspirator means is when you, you there's a charging document like an indictment that prosecutors literally say, you know, Michael Cohen conspired with individual one or executive two or something like that. So they don't name the person, but they charge and allege um, that the that that person was a conspirator. And that's important because they're essentially saying we believe that person committed a crime and we could prove it. So, you know, I think that's important. Richard Nixon was once named as an unindicted co-conspirator that had a very significant impact on his presidency. A bit. Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> I think it would have an impact here. And, and I think, you know, it's a big moment for me because a lot of, of the folks who listen to this podcast, who read me on Twitter, um, who contact me in various ways, want to know, you know, will the president's family ever get in trouble? And I've answered this before and said, you know, it's really unclear. The matter of fact, the last time we were on with Mimi, who will be joining us later on this podcast, Mimi Roca, um, I, I think we both said, you know, it's not clear to us whether Trump Jr. could ever get indicted. Well, uh, but it can. The thing, the distinction, though, the difference in all the conversations that we've had that the president cannot be right. Mm-hmm. But obviously his family can be. And imagine how much he would spiral if that began to happen, if. Eric and Donald Jr., you know, start to come they have uh, filings against them. No question. I think that would have a very significant impact on Trump and I think also on his presidency mm-hmm. and his administration and the national conversation. Um, but, you know, when we've talked about it in the past, I've always been very careful because the public evidence doesn't seem to be pointing that way. Now we're getting to a point where the Southern District of New York, which is the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office, the federal prosecutors in, in, the, in New York City, they have been getting so far in their investigation that they are lining pieces up to go after somebody bigger than Michael Cohen. And the obvious person is Executive Two. And that person very well could be a Trump family member, which I think is a big deal. So, um, you know, I think, you know, it remains to be seen what the effect of that will be. Mm-hmm. But I think that very much tells us, um, you know, gives us a roadmap as to what may be coming next. So, you know, that to me was really a big takeaway of the um, of the you know last few days. And it also, you know, a lot of journalists have been asking me, what do you see as the the biggest threat that the that the Trump presidency faces? And I remember during our last um, our last podcast with Neil, which by the way was once again our highest rated podcast. Thank we, you, everyone. We, yeah, we're breaking breaking records. Thank you all for listening. But you know, I said that I thought it was Neil was more circumspect because he said we don't know what comes out of the Mueller investigation. I guess you know I've thought more about that question because I've been asked it so many times. And one thing I just want to say to everyone is, as somebody now who defends people who are in very complicated legal situations, usually involving criminal and civil and all sorts of liability, I would regard the uh, Southern District of New York piece of this to be the biggest problem if I represented Trump, because it is by far the furthest along in terms of where it you could see you could see it just with one or two steps from now getting to the point where it's indicting either you know whether it's the president or the people around him uh it is getting to that point where you see the southern district of new york line up cohen as a cooperator line up weisselberg uh, and get his testimony get a deal with the company that owns the inquirer called ami um lining up all their ducks in a row so that they are able to charge somebody else and that is somebody else, you know, by definition is going to be somebody high level in the Trump organization. Whereas with Mueller, look, who knows what evidence that that Mr. Mueller has, but we don't know what that is. We don't know where he's at with that. Right now, he seems you know, focused on building charges against Corsi and um, uh, Roger Stone. It may be some time before he gets down the road to wherever he's going to lead. Whereas here, I know if I'm a if I'm a lawyer representing Trump, you know, I'm working overtime trying to figure out what my defenses are to these various uh, violations. So I, I read in your piece in Politico, by the way, great job. I mean, I can hear you now in my head reading it to me almost. But you mentioned the beyond a reasonable doubt factor that prosecutors have to 
leap over. So what what would it take in this instance to whether it's Donald Trump or somebody else in that close circle to be indicted for something? So, uh, you know, ironically, uh, let's just focus on the campaign finance violation for a minute. Mm -hmm. You know, ironically, the the part that I think the prosecutors seem like they have pretty well nailed down is that they have to prove that these payments, these hush money payments were made in connect as uh, primarily to further the campaign or the election. Okay, Mm -hmm. so they were they were made to influence the election in some way. And, you know, that's something ironically that a lot of Trump's defenders have been talking about, uh, you know, as a potential defense that, hey, this there's this John Edwards defense that essentially you were you were doing it to, to avoid embarrassment, not to influence the election. I always thought that was kind of dubious uh, defense here because these can't, these payments were made right before the last presidential debate, very late in the election season. These affairs had happened over a decade earlier. The the women had at one point, I think Stormy Daniels had come forward before and they didn't try to pay her off years before. Um, you know, Trump is somebody who, you know, frankly, had not hidden the fact that he had had, uh, you know, uh, relationships, extramarital relationships in the past. So it, it didn't strike me as the strongest defense here. That's and in what we see now is prosecutors had enough evidence on that point to convince Michael Cohen to plead guilty. Right. And Cohen's got very, very, very good criminal defense attorney. Then now they've got Cohen's testimony on this point. So unlike John Edwards, the guy who arranged the payment for Trump's going to come on, take the witness in and say, yes, we were doing it to influence the election. And now they've got the company that the, the National Enquirer uh, that was facilitating these payments is going to come in and say, yeah, that was the reason behind this. That's very damning on that point. So the question is, what, you know, what, what would they need to prove? Well, they would need to prove that Trump knew that these payments were um, against the law in some way or wrongful. And that, you know, that can be a challenge here because Michael Cohen is a lawyer. I don't believe he was acting as a lawyer here, at least based on what the Southern District of New York has told us. And, you know, he certainly was not somebody who you would go to for advice on election law. Right. But I think, you know, thinking about it is somebody, you know, if you're on the other side here, now that I represent criminal defendants at times, um, that, you know, the fact that a lawyer is involved is something that a, a, that Trump's attorneys can point to mm-hmm. and say, look, he th- knew an attorney was involved in, in on this. He would never have thought that an attorney would break the law or at risk of going to prison. So the, the fact that he got his attorney involved and his attorney was facilitating this, you know, that he was a busy guy and he just thought it must be OK if, if his attorney was involved. You know, I, that you may be like, come on or whatever. But, you know, all you need is one juror out of 12, um, you know, to can to be convinced by an argument like that. And, you know, Trump is a guy when he's running for president. I mean, that's as busy as somebody could get. Sure. You know, if you if you put yourself in the shoes of a juror hearing all of this in a courtroom, it's possible. So I think what prosecutors would have to show is Trump's mental state if they were bringing this. Now, of course, the bigger issue that looms beyond all of this or behind all of this is whether or not Trump could be indicted while in office. You know, before uh, we started recording this, I read an excellent thread written by Neil Katyal, who was our last guest on this subject, the former acting solicitor general. And he has all sorts of really interesting arguments and ideas as to why um, that may not apply in this case. And I think they're all really interesting. Uh, I will just say a lot of you have been asking me, well, what are your thoughts on this, Renato, et cetera? I guess I would say a couple things. First of all, this situation has never really come up where you had a prosecutor who either indicted the president or intended to. And uh, the, a court, much less the Supreme Court, was this, was tasked with making a decision uh, regarding this question. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this is by its nature speculative. There's nothing in the Constitution that says one way or the other about this. And Neil has very interesting points, and he's certainly argued these these sorts of complicated issues before the Supreme Court in a way that I haven't. And the short answer is I don't know whether Neil Katyal could convince five Supreme Court justices or nine Supreme Court justices of any of these things. And I try to be very real with all of you and only tell you things that I feel like I can be pretty confident about. So one thing, I, you know, all the stuff that I'm telling you, I can— 
you know, about what's happening in the courtroom and how federal investigations work, I can be pretty confident that I'm that I'm telling you things that are pretty straightforward. That is far from straightforward, and it is anyone's guess as to how the Supreme Court would rule on that issue. But he's got very interesting thoughts, and I'd encourage all of you to check them out on Twitter. I retweeted his thread so you can look at my feed and find it there. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, though, you know, we've been analyzing a lot of this through a campaign finance lens, and I think that's interesting. One thing I will point out is that if you read the Cohen charging documents— and I mentioned this briefly in the Politico piece, that there appear to be other potential crimes involved here in addition to campaign finance. So you know, one that you know, one thing that really leaps out to me as a former federal prosecutor who used to investigate uh, white-collar crime like this is that there were false entries in the books and records of Trump Organization related to these payments. So they inflate the numbers to Cohen. They they misdescribe what the what the um, payments were for and about. And so you know that that matters and that leaps out at me because for to prove fraud, what you have to prove is telling lies in order to um, to make money. Essentially, you're mm-hmm. lying to somebody to get money or property. And you know this is not that far away from you know get you part of the way there. And also making false statements to a bank, for example, are always that's always a, for purposes of getting a loan are always a federal crime. In which case, in which uh, Cohen had done right in order Correct. to withdraw the money to make the payments. Iron- right. Yeah, ironically, some of the money used to make the payments. And then uh, under New York law, um, which is at issue here because the New York Attorney General is investigating this, um, the, you know, the the law is even broader. So having false entries in your books and records in the state of New York, I be, is my understanding is it's a lower level crime, but mm-hmm. it is a, a crime. And that would be something that, that Trump could not pardon. So, you know, the reason I say that is you could imagine a point where, you know, right now Trump is implicated in, in a crime. They're asking various senators about it. And they're all like, oh, I don't know how to answer this. You know, Orrin Hatch, I think just in a disgracefully said, I don't care. Um, But a lot, you know, the Republicans, for example, in in Congress don't know what to do with that. If there becomes other crimes that Trump's implicated in, it could get to a point where it's hard to explain it all away. I was wondering about that, too, by the way, when you uh, you posted about Lindsey Graham, uh, you know, saying I don't care. I also was amused by uh, Cohen saying that President Trump was right when he called him weak, not for the reasons he was saying, but because he didn't. keep himself from covering up the president's dirty deeds. Yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting. I mean, Cohen's uh, statement was, I think, remarkable be, before the judge, because what he, he was essentially saying was that, you know, he was it was his way of kind of talking back at what the president said and said that, look, that, you know, reminding the judge that the president of the United States is the one calling for a very tough sentence here. That was a very interesting sentencing strategy. I don't know whether it, it uh, paid off for him, but I will uh, want to bring those up with our guest, uh, and I, I'll bring her in now. Uh, Mimi Roca is an MSNBC legal analyst. She's also a former federal prosecutor, and she was a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. So I think uh, she's going to be somebody who gives us a lot of insight into uh, all of what's been happening this week. Welcome to the show, Mimi. Thanks for coming back on. Thanks so much for having me back. So, you know, earlier today, Michael Cohen was sentenced. He got three years in prison. First of all, was that a a surprise to you at all? No. And in fact, I have no way of proving this, but I I might have predicted to some people today that I thought he was going to get 36 months. (laughs) So it was not a surprise. (laughs) I don't think I'm alone in that prediction. I saw some other, uh, definitely some other former Southern District prosecutors who had predicted that. Jennifer Rogers, uh, who I know you know from CNN. Um, So, and I can tell you why I wasn't surprised by it. Um, You know, I know we'll probably get into this in a little more detail, but basically, you know, he was facing in the range of about, you know, I think it was 51 to 63 months, which is, you know, somewhere in the range of five to six years. And, um, uh, well, five and a a half years, five to five and a half years, I guess. And um, 
he uh, got less than that because of cooperation, but he wasn't going to get a whole less than that, meaning no prison time because he didn't cooperate as fully as he could have. So he got sort of a, a medium um, you know, uh, discount, if you will, as opposed to a full discount because of some cooperation. One of the uh, followers on Twitter, Christina, wants to know why why have Cohen's sentencing now? Wouldn't it have been better for Mueller to keep open the possibility or cooperation deal later? And they also want to know why is there a three month delay between uh, when he goes to jail and now? Well, let's let me start with the first one, because and kind of tee this up for Mimi, because I think this gets us into a bigger issue that Mimi was alluding to a moment ago. Usually when you cooperate, and most of these people that you're hearing about, like so-and-so, for example, Michael Flynn has a cooperation deal. What that person has done is they've agreed to fully, completely, and truthfully cooperate with the prosecutors. They tell them about all their past misdeeds. They agree to cooperate on any matter whatsoever. And they agree to postpone their sentencing till after their cooperation is completed. Michael Cohen was not willing to do that. The the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, uh, Mimi's former colleagues, were not happy about that for a lot of reasons. And we can both talk about why that might be. And so her point was he was not getting full credit for that. And that also explains why his sentencing wasn't delayed. I'm curious what your insights and thoughts are on that, Mimi. Yeah, I think that's exactly sort of why it wasn't delayed, because uh, if, you, if he had pled guilty pursuant to a, a, a normal, at least Southern District cooperation agreement, they would have postponed the sentencing until after all of his cooperation was done. Remember, Mueller has a more narrow mandate, obviously, and, and because of that, in some ways, has more flexibility of what he could do with cooperators. So for him, it was... For, for the Mueller team, Cohen could go in and just talk about this one area, and Mueller didn't sort of have to fit it into the usual framework of how cooperation agreements are done, because there is no usual for a special counsel, whereas the Southern District is sticking, you know, to sort of its regular way that it treats, and, and the prosecutor today made a point of this, we're not treating Cohen any differently than any other defendant who wants to cooperate, which means he's got to tell us everything, and it sounds like Cohen said, I'll talk about certain areas, but not other areas. That's that's the Southern District's position. So, yeah, it it would have been helpful, sure, to put off coincidencing, even for Mueller, because it sort of has, allows the prosecutor to have continued leverage, if you will, you know, something sort of hanging over um, the defendant. But, you know, that just wasn't the the arrangement here, um, in, in large part because of the way that Cohen did it, but but it seems like he's also already given Mueller what Mueller needs. Yeah, I I agree with everything Mimi said, which is not surprising. I I often find <laughs> myself doing that, which is the <laughs> reason why originally I invited uh, you on uh, previously, Mimi. Um, but well, I, vice versa, I, I also uh, agree with everything you say. Mostly. <laughs> so, um, what I what I'll say is um, a couple things. First of all, w- you know, one thing that Mimi kind of alluded to, which I think is important to understand, is that an office like the Southern District of New York is an institution. It is around been around for a hundred plus years. Okay, it will be around in, unless. Something crazy happens. Uh, it's going to be around for a hundred more. Okay, and the office I was at, we had the same, uh, you know, the same sort of reputation around here. The, my, you know, we we call it the office. And I was taught yeah. from when I was, you know, when I was a young prosecutor that the office is bigger than all of us, and its reputation, and it's and it's the the way the institution runs. And the idea is, you know, if you give somebody special treatment. Um, or different treatment, then it sets a precedent that people will be citing for years to come. Well, why am I not getting the Cohen deal? Um, and so, you know, what what the Southern District was trying to do here is prevent Michael Cohen from having his cake and eating it, too. Now, what Cohen's attorney, who's an excellent, also former Southern District alum, a guy who used to be a bigwig in that office, what he was trying to do was say, look, my client just wants to get this done quickly. He doesn't want this postponed. And for that limited reason... He's going to cooperate in the future. He promises pinky swears. And he's telling, you know, he's telling you what he knows and just take his word on it. And what the Southern District said is you haven't signed an agreement or done anything that obligates you to tell us everything that you know. 
you got the sense from their filing that, as Mimi said, they suspected he hadn't, that there was something he was holding back on. And I've had journalists ask me what I think that is, and we, if we, we can speculate if we want. But he was holding back on something, as I think Mimi also pointed out. And then, you know, I think from, from their perspective, as they put in their filing, they don't know, they have nothing holding over, to hold over his head to know whether or not he'll cooperate once he's sentenced. And I know everyone listening to this is going to say, well, of course he will. That's what he's made, made clear. But look how much George Papadopoulos turned on a dime as soon as he got his sentence, right? He was super contrite. And then, then you know, this guy's been going around uh, attacking Mueller and the deep state and writing books and whatever else, TV shows, whatever else he's doing. And so from the Southern District's perspective, they don't know for sure what Cohen could be doing in the future. And... You know, they do have something they could give him. There's a kind of motion called the Rule 35 where they could ask for an additional reduction in the future. But, you know, that's less of a carrot than having the entire sentencing wait until after the cooperation is done. Because sometimes, as we saw in the Paul Manafort case, those cooperation deals literally blow up. So what is, what about the idea that he'll, he's not going to serve until March, that he doesn't go to jail till then? Does he wear an ankle, ankle bracelet until then? I, I didn't hear that, that I, as far as I know, the bail conditions, meaning whatever they were before he was sentenced, are the same now until March. Um, you know, I, so in other words, I don't, I don't think there is any kind of ankle bracelet or anything. You know, this, it's a little, basically, once, once the judge decides that someone isn't going to be remanded immediately, which it doesn't even sound like the government was asking for that here, um, but once the judge makes that decision, the, the surrender date, I, I have seen, I don't think this is unusually long. It's a little bit longer than normal, but not too much. I, I saw from reading the transcript, it, it didn't look like it was anything more than sort of they want to make sure that he's designated. He has the facility where he's going to be serving a sentence actually designated so he doesn't have to go into a pre uh, like a pretrial facility, like the MCC, like a local federal prison here, which is not as nice, frankly, as the federal prison where yeah. he will actually be designated. Now, it could also, you know, maybe part of why the government didn't object is it will also allow Cohen to meet more easily with Mueller if he needs to, or Congress. I mean, there's all sorts of sort of other reasons that I can think of that a prosecutor in this case would want, you know, that would, would not mind having the defendant out. Um, so that may have had something to do with it, but it looked like it wasn't much of a debate, at least on the record in, in the sentencing. You know, Mimi, I'm curious if the practice in New York is the same here. So in Chicago, I, I handled, you know, uh, mostly white collar type prosecutions of the sort, you know, like we were dealing with in the Cohen case. And I think it was pretty standard for defendants to not be remanded, to have a report date. And I think a lot of my uh, listeners are more concerned about flight, uh, the possibility of flight, than I was as a prosecutor by the time I was a senior prosecutor. Because I realized that people like Cohen had a lot to lose by fleeing. And, um, you know, even though he has to serve, so, and some of you asked how much does he have to serve? He has to serve 85% of that sentence if he gets good time credit, which he would, you know, for good behavior, which I'm sure he probably will. Um, but, you know, serving that time is, is a less bad circumstance than going on the run and facing a much stiffer sentence and bigger problems down the road. I think that's right. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, there definitely are white collar defendants that, you know, we would uh, seek detention on if, if, if they had a lot of foreign connections, if they had hidden assets. Um, but, you know, again, here, it looks like the government wasn't really opposing it. And that could be both because they think he's not a risk of flight and because they want to facilitate him being able to cooperate with other authorities. That's right. And I should I agree, by the way, with exactly the factors that Mimi said. Those are exactly some of the things that I would look at. And I many times opposed, um, you know, requests to travel for foreign travel and, and tried to remand folks when they were had those circumstances, although I was not always successful. I was rarely successful in certain cases. So so the, we had this drama that played out today. I got the sense, Mimi, that Cohen's attorney was not happy with um, the Southern District. Uh, you know, I think, it, you know, it may have helped explain why 
they ultimately had that deal with Mueller and brought Mueller's, uh, you know, attorney up, Jeannie Ree, up to, um, you know, to also speak to the judge. What, what did you make of the back and forth between uh, the Southern District and uh, Michael Cohen's attorney? Well, I was a little bit surprised only because, I mean, I, I know Guy Petrillo. I served under him when he was criminal division chief. Um, and, and, and so not that someone from the Southern District can't be critical of it because that, that's not the case at all. He's a defense attorney and his job now is to, you know, serve his client, Michael Cohen. Um, but what I was surprised by is that the argument he seems to be making is essentially you know, he had some line in there about, you know, the small gods give us, you know, cooperation in the Southern District and God forbid you should, you know, cross that or I forget the exact line, but Mm -hmm. he was basically saying the system that the Southern District has, which is pretty unique to the Southern District, I think, in how rigid it is, right? It is you must come in and tell us everything you ever did that could possibly be illegal. I mean, starting with, like, did you steal chewing gum from the store, you know, all the way up to felony-type behavior. And some of it you're going to have to plead to. We'll, you know, we'll figure that out. But it's all going to be part of the record officially, um, and, and, and the judge is going to know all of, all of it. And you don't get to pick and choose which areas. And, and that seems to be what Colin has done, right? And, and Petrillo, right. Um, his lawyer, seemed to really be taking issue with the rigidity of that process. And it is rigid. And it's not like we haven't, the Southern District hasn't faced criticism for that before. Um, it happens to me all the time. But you, you say, look, this is, as you said, Renata, this, you know, this is office has been around for hundreds of years. This process has been in place for decades. And it's it's a scary proposition for defendants to have to come in and plead guilty and tell the government more than what they at least think the government already knows and implicate other people and themselves in further crimes. But at the end of the day, the defendants who end up doing the least jail time are the ones who take that leap of faith and do that. And and it does work out the best for them. And I think Michael Cohen sort of learned that lesson today, and it's a harsh lesson to learn because had he done that, there's no way to know for sure. But I think there's a better possibility that he would have ended up doing very little to no jail time, even if he had implicated himself uh, in further crimes. And, and that sounds kind of counterintuitive. So what I was surprised by was the fact that Petrillo was taking issue with a system that he knows, you know, well how it works. Um, Indeed, it, and it, probably enforced it when he was criminal uh, division chief. Absolutely, right? absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, he's, he's representing his client now. Of course. I'm sure his client is very disappointed by it and wants to have it both ways. But I do think one important thing to point out to people is that well, you know, it seems like there, and, and there's been some sort of analysis and reporting of this sort of rift between the special counsel's office and the Southern District with respect to Michael Cohen and these very different views. And I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. It sounds to me like both the Southern District and the special counsel's office are saying Michael Cohen provided truthful information with respect to the areas that he told us about. And for Mueller, that was enough because there were only certain areas that he needed information. And as we just explained, he wasn't speaking beyond that. For the Southern District, that wasn't enough. Not providing full information is essentially, you know, being, uh, it makes you not sufficient as a cooperator. But it wasn't that he wasn't truthful. I don't think they had different views about him and his credibility in, in the information he provided. I think that's sort of important point to make. I think so, too. And, you know, one thing I'll say, you know, first of all, that is the exact same system we have in Chicago in the Northern District of Illinois. The same requirement. You have to come in and tell everything about everything. And I think part Mm -hmm. of it stems from the fact, and I want to make sure listeners understand, they've probably, if you've been listening to the podcast, you've heard me refer to the fact that sentencing, when, when the judge sentences someone, they have to look at all of the factors of that person, including the history and characteristics of the defendant. And, I think prosecutors, at least here, and I'm sure in the Southern District, feel that in order to be able to to tell the uh, the judge everything about that person so that this way they can fully evaluate the person when they sentence them, they need to know everything as well. Now, he, you know, I think that kind of dovetails with something that 
Um, one of the listeners asked on my thread when I asked, or in, on Twitter when I asked for questions today, which I, I think Patty noted is an excellent question, which was how much of the sentence is for the campaign finance violation and how much of it is, is for the other pieces of it? So let's, let me just explain uh, how, uh, how federal sentencing works, and Mimi will correct me if I'm wrong, uh, which can happen from time to time. So essentially, the, the judge calculates the guideline range. Mimi talked through the guideline range earlier, 51 to 63 months here. That's computed through a lot of factors and all of the different sentence, uh, the different offenses and uh, various factors. Not every factor you might think of, but a lot of factors are, are computed into that. And, and also uh, Mr. Cohen's criminal history. But the judge doesn't just look at the guideline range and decide, OK, I'm just going to go with that. Just like the judge did here, the judge can go below or above the guideline range. And the judge is required under law to consider a set of factors that are very, very broad, which um, so if you've been listening a while, you've heard me talk about like the history and characteristics of the defendant, uh, the nature and circumstances of the offense, essentially everything under the sun. And they're contained in a pre-sentence investigation report, uh, which is the, the document you've heard me talk about, both in the Politico piece and in last week about where that the probation office comes up with that contains all of the details about Cohen and the crimes, including the direction of Trump uh, uh, as to those payments. So we can't be sure what part of the sentence relates to one part because the judge is considering the whole kit and caboodle when deciding to give Mr. Cohen 36 months. And the judge is not going to piece off what factors led to what pieces of that sentence. Is that right, Mimi? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's 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 the whole bag approach, not uh, you know, there's no sort of separate buckets to put it in. So, Mimi, let me ask you cuz I before you get before I brought you in, I gave everyone my view of where this is going to go next. And I, you know, I wrote this piece in Politico magazine today and I talk about how I, you know, think they're building towards a case against Executive Two in the Cohen uh, indictment. What, what, what is your sense of what the Southern District is going to do next? Because you saw Guy Petrillo, uh, Cohen's attorney, alluding during the sentencing to the fact that they're they're, you know, continuing to build towards something. And he seemed frustrated with that. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I mean, I, I think it, it seems to me like the Southern District is not done. Uh, that, that's the most certain thing I think we can say. Um, we know that by revealing this, um, we haven't really talked about this yet, but they revealed another piece today in addition to the, to the Cohen, uh, being, Cohen being sentenced, they revealed this non-prosecution agreement with AMI, the corp, the um, the Enquirer company that was National Enquirer company that was involved in this campaign finance scheme, um, and that seems to be a, a cooperation agreement essentially. Uh, so it seems that AMI and David Pecker, the the chief of uh, AMI, are cooperating. And the question is, well, who are they cooperating against? Um, and who is Cohen? You know, according to Petrillo, continuing to cooperate against? Uh, and we know that when Cohen pled guilty and we know from his documents that the Trump organization and executive two, as you say, are implicated in these schemes that Cohen has now pled guilty and been sentenced to and AMI has uh, sort of admitted guilt to uh, through this non-prosecution agreement. And they're implicated in the sense that they were used to, in a way, to um, de design the payments to these women so that they would be essentially, you know, it was part of the, the process of, of hiding the payments to the women or trying to hide them uh, through the Trump Organization and, and, and labeling the payments as something else falsely from the Trump Organization. Um, and, you know, that's, that's sort of the question is, well, who, who else was involved there? And, you know, could you, could the Southern District indict the Trump Organization? Um, and are there other crimes that the Trump Organization was used for? And so then maybe you could be looking beyond just campaign finance and into some kind of racketeering type of charges. 
Um, you know, and even within the scheme that we know about, which we keep calling a campaign finance scheme because that's what Cohen pled guilty to, but it seems to me that there's other potential crimes even within that scheme, right? I mean, there, there seems to be, you know, there was a shell company that Michael Cohen created. There um, seems to be some false, as we said, false entries in the books of the Trump Organization. There could be some kind of bank fraud. I mean, you know, you, you have to know a lot more details to be able to figure out what elements you can meet. But I, I think there's probably more to explore, even with respect to those facts. Um, and then there's probably, you know, there's probably other conduct out there that they're learning about. Because as you know, Renata, once you start, once you put a, you know, team of trained, good investigators looking into something like this, you know, you usually end up finding uh, more than what you started looking for. I, there's no question about that. I, I try to, I, when I talk to clients or potential clients, one thing I explain to them is the best way to avoid problems with the federal government is not to have them looking at you. It's sort of like <laughs> Ru- Russian, <laughs> Russian hackers or something, you know, my laptop, I'm sure uh, some, if they were, if the Russians really wanted to, they could hack into my laptop. I'm just not important enough. Uh, to have my laptop <laughs> acted to. Uh, so you just want to stay under their radar. Well, because the way to stay under yeah. the radar, I would imagine, is to not win the presidency. Would they be in any <laughs> trouble if Trump had lost? And this comes up a lot on your on your feed as well. I don't know, Patty, because if he, even if he lost, it seemed like this investigation was going to was going to happen. I mean, this was spun off from the Mueller investigation, the Southern District uh, piece. Right. And, uh, you know, I think win or lose, there was going to be an investigation into the Russian attack on our elections. Okay. And the question is just, would there have been a special counsel or not, or would have been done by the main, main justice? And and we, we don't really know how it would have played out, but I think this would have come out either way. I think running for the presidency <laughs> is a and becoming a major party nominee is a great way of putting, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 making yourself a bigger target. But I thought, you know, m- you know, Mimi, you touched on some really interesting points just there that that listeners may be interested in. You know, when I looked at this and I before you came on, I explained to listeners, I'm like, OK, well, I think executive two, you know, is is, is somebody that they're going to be going after. They could even name Trump as an unindicted co-conspirator in an indictment like that, mm-hmm. which would obviously be a big deal. But, you know, you mentioned indicting the corporation itself. And, you know, that is something that prosecutors, I think, uh, are reluctant to do for various reasons, some of which have been laid out in a memo that I think we're both very familiar with. Um, And, you know, I think it might be interesting for folks to just sort of briefly um, hear about when you indict a corporation versus indicting individuals and, and, and what's involved with that. Right. Well, actually, I mean, so there, there's a lot of um, considerations in indicting a corporation, um, you know, that don't come up when you're invite, indicting individuals because corporations normally are, you know, large entities that employ a lot of people and there might be one or two or, you know, a few bad actors um, but by indicting a corporation, you you can run the risk of sort of bringing down the whole house, even if that wasn't the intention. So there's a lot of caution around it. Exactly. Um, that wouldn't go, go ahead. I was going to say that's exactly right. So, you know, one thing that um, the Justice Department, I think, has been doing for a while and they've more they formalized this in recent years is. They have focus on indicting individuals and not uh, mm-hmm. indicting corporations because, first of all, you can't throw a corporation in prison. It's much more effective to actually go after the individual wrongdoers. There's a famous memo that Sally Yates penned called the Yates Memo um, that essentially uh, wrote down what was already at least the practice in my office, which was to focus on individuals, not on corporations. And then there's a whole lot of factors that there's something, a prior memo called the Philip Memo. That that is set forth that 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 uh, justice department lawyers fo- uh, prosecutors follow that essentially gives you a list of factors you look at when indicting a corporation and, and I had a look at those factors many times and they almost always you almost always come out in favor of not indicting the corporation for essentially the reasons that Mimi said which is you have a lot of shareholders a lot of employees a lot of collateral damage. Uh, that would be caused by that uh, prosecution. You're better off prosecuting the individual wrongdoers because any corporation usually is bigger than just one or two people. But here, 
um, you know, you could imagine it being less of an issue if the kind of the entire top brass of the Trump organization are involved. And it's, it is not a publicly traded company, so it's, it is a smaller enterprise. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, I think some of the traditional concerns aren't raised uh, with the Trump organization because it's smaller and it's family owned. Uh, and operated, as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I mean, there's still, obviously, there's a lot of employees of the Trump Organization, you know, people who do all sorts of jobs there and are just trying to make ends meet. Um, and certainly that would be the sort of tough decision that prosecutors would have to come to as to who to indict, whether you indict the corporation or the individual in a situation like that. Now, let's talk a little bit about this AMI agreement that came out today. People are asking a ton of questions about that, Mimi, and I will say... One thing that folks should understand and put into context is the kind of non-cooperation deal that AMI got is a very good deal. It's a sort of deal that uh, when you're on the other side uh, that clients are trying to are hoping that I can get them all the time where you just pay a little bit of money or something like that and agree to help the government uh, and you don't get prosecuted. Uh, Do you want to kind of give some context about how those deals are, are usually handled by the Southern District? Sure. I mean, again, you know, I think that this goes to the issue we were just talking about, about sort of the caution in, in um, indicting or not indicting corporations. Obviously, AMI is a corporation. Um, and, you know, really what they did here is they did sort of a it's basically a cooperation agreement, but without uh, an actual plea to a crime. And, and for corporations, that is somewhat common, um, a, a common outcome, I would say. Um, so, you know, I think, again, this is the Southern District sort of doing what it has done traditionally with, um, you know, parties before it, subjects, targets, you know, same way they, they said that they were treating Michael Cohen and, and no differently than anyone else. So, um, it's a kind of immunity, basically. Uh, I mean, it, it essentially gives the company immunity because they're covered by this, and so they're not facing exposure uh, as long as they stick to the terms of this agreement. And to me, the important takeaway from this agreement is that AMI is agreeing that these payments that they facilitated were primarily for purposes of uh, influencing the election or you know related to primarily related to the campaign and that that seems to me to knock the legs under uh, out from under any kind of Edwards John Edwards defense and I know I, I saw you had made similar comments uh, Mimi as well yeah absolutely I mean it, it, you know I, I as soon as I heard about this agreement I, uh, and, and so what you have now is you have first Michael Cohen said um, in his plea, you know, and then we you know through sentencing, he he said that these payments were to influence the campaign. Okay, easy for Trump to try and Giuliani as they've been doing on Twitter and, and interviews to say, well, Cohen's a liar. No, no, this was a private matter. Or this was essentially us almost settling a, a lawsuit, a civil suit, if you will. You know, with these women, basically, we're you know, it's a civil matter to keep them uh, from talking. Uh, because, you know, essentially I didn't want my family or my wife to you know, find out about these affairs. And I think there was a lot of circumstantial evidence already suggesting that that really was not the case, right? The timing of the payments in relation to when the affairs were. You had Trump and Cohen on tape um, talking about these payments right in the same conversation where they were talking about the campaign and poll numbers. So there was already evidence out there. Then you have Cohen and it, and now you have the other party involved, the other major party involved in, in this scheme saying uh, the same thing, saying this was done in concert with the campaign and to, you know, influence to, to, to make sure that this did not negatively impact the campaign, the election. Um, it, it doesn't mean Trump still couldn't make that claim, that it was for some other purpose, that he wasn't, you know, but it just makes it so much less plausible. And so it, it really just, you know, chips away, if not completely knocks out that defense, which is the defense that John Edwards raised somewhat success, successfully uh, at his, his trial, 
where he claimed that the payoff to a mistress was to make sure, you know, basically for personal reasons. And the facts were just completely different there. So, you know, all these people have been saying, well, they, they would never prosecute campaign finance because look at John Edwards. That, that was a silly argument because it's not about the legal theory uh, or the statute or any problem with that. It, those, that case was about those facts. This case is about these facts. And every day that goes by, the facts of this case look stronger and stronger. Yeah, I always thought that was such a silly argument. I, I mean, I think maybe it's easy for folks to understand, and that's why they, Trump's uh, defenders have been repeating it. But, uh, you know, the, the, what the Edwards case showed me, and really the way I would look at it if, if I was being candid uh, and I represented Trump is, this is telling me that not only the FEC regards these things potentially as campaign uh, finance violations, but the Justice Department has decided that they may indict people for these sorts of payments. And I got to say, the Edwards payments were much more of a stretch because he's a guy who had a reputation for being devoted to his wife, who had cancer, uh, and they, they were much further away from the election. And... Um, you know, you know, the witnesses had all sorts of problems. One was dead. Another one, I think, was over 100 years old and so on. Well, let, look, before we before we wrap up, I do want to talk a little bit about the Maria Butina plea agreement. The, you know, I think I thought it was interesting. You know what? You know, one of the things that I would mention, you know, to folks, I mean, it was it, it was, I think, a bit of uh, a surprise, although it's been telegraphed for a few days now. You know, to me, what I thought was interesting is it's a full cooperation deal. Uh, supposedly, she's agreeing to cooperate with all federal state authorities, including, you know, that would mean Mueller, anyone. And, you know, she's the somebody who's been photographed with everyone from Trump Jr. to Rick Santorum. She asked a question of, of Donald Trump, uh, all, the head of the NRA, the National Prayer Breakfast folks. Um, you know, there are um, there's a lot of potential people she could provide information about. Yeah, look, if, if, the, if the reports that she is cooperating uh, turn out to be, you know, accurate, and, and I'm sure that this is what reporters are hearing, it's just I won't, you know, I, until I actually, I, I would say this back when I was a prosecutor, too, until she actually pleads guilty and I see the plea agreement and it happens, you know, you don't want to um, sort of check that box yet. Because um, anything can happen, and we know her plea, in fact, was put off by a day or two. So, you know, that could be for no reason, or it could be that there's some bumps in the road. So, so we, we want to sort of use that caution a little bit. Um, but if it happens, you know, I think it has the potential, like other things that have happened in this mm -hmm. uh, whole saga and investigation, to be very, very significant because she seems to be a very direct link between. You know, Russia, the Kremlin, I mean, despite Putin claiming he doesn't know who she is, which is just completely implausible, um, between that side and, you know, certainly powerful people here in the United States. And it seems even a direct link to Trump and the campaign because she, in fact, you know, said explicitly that that was something she was she was trying to. Um, facilitate and and you know we don't yet know how successful that was, but um, we we have some idea that it, it might have been successful yeah. in part because as you say she showed up you know somewhat supposedly randomly in 2015 and in this seeming rehearsed interaction with Trump you know he called on her for a question and she asked him about his position on sanctions. Uh, towards Russia, and he gave the answer that Russia would have wanted to hear, which was essentially, no, I don't think we really need those sanctions. We can we can work around them. Um, so, you know, was that was that the end of that that interaction? It seems highly unlikely, and and I think that's what we would want to find out. But you know, everyone's looking for the direct sort of link, which may or may not exist. I mean, you can, as you know, you can have a conspiracy without a direct communication between Russia and, you know, Trump or, or even anyone in his inner circle. But she may actually have provided something like that, and we'll have to see. But her cooperation has the potential to be very valuable. You know, one thing I, I think I, I agree with exactly what you said, uh, Mimi, and I will say that I uh, one thing I thought was interesting there is her former paramour, 
uh, looks like he is in a world of hurt. You know, he, according to the reporting, I think it was by ABC News, has received a target letter, which we both know means that, you know, the prosecutors think that they are, you know, they are planning to indict him. And I would I believe the charge there would be conspiracy to be a Russian agent without notifying the attorney general, uh, essentially like, a you know, the same charges she had. That That would have to be pretty devastating. I can't imagine that guy would not get a pretty stiff sentence for that. Yeah, I mean, that's, look, that's a whole, I mean, it's not being a spy, I think, you know, but it's it's sort of being a spy in the way that most Americans would think about it, right? So working on behalf of another government, it's pretty close to being a traitor without technically being a traitor, but you're working for another government within your own country, so... Yeah, it's pretty, not a good place to be. Yeah, it's, it's how we think of being a traitor. You know, traitors defined very narrowly in the Constitution for various reasons. But right. that's essentially the way most people think of being a traitor. I know one of your Twitter followers, John, right. wanted to know is what is the NRA's legal exposure if Bettina says they laundered Russian money to help Trump win? Well, look, I mean, it, it's, it's sort of the conclusion is stated in the tweet. In other words, look, <laughs> if, if they, in fact, laundered money, then they're in trouble. I would, I, anybody in the United States, if you laundered money for any reason you, that, and the, the govern, federal criminal prosecutors are looking at you, you're in, you're in trouble. But I will say this. I mean, if I represented the NRA, there's no question I would be very alarmed uh, not only by her cooperation, but look, they're already got to be on red alert over there. There's cl- they're clearly the subjects of a federal criminal investigation. Um, and, you know, the, they just like I said earlier, when the when the fe- and Mimi was talking about when the federal uh, prosecutors have you in their sights, that's never that's never a good thing for any organization. So, you know, Mimi, one thing I want to ask you about and get your take on is. As sort of a kind of our last wrap up here is, you know, one thing that has really surprised me is the way that we've seen so many Republican lawmakers um, respond to the fact that Donald Trump has been implicated by a crime. I I know both of us keyed in on the fact that everyone in the courtroom uh, essentially agreed. I mean, even the judge when he was going through the PSR on, you know, the fact that Trump directed Cohen to commit this these payments to commit the crime. And yet Republican lawmakers want, you know, Orrin Hatch, I think, infamously or shamefully said, I don't care. But there were others who just weren't interested in looking into it really much at all. Lindsey Graham said that he wouldn't investigate the matter. You know, how do you what is your reaction to all of this? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, on the one hand, we've gotten sort of used to Republicans turning a blind eye to Trump's bad conduct. Um, but this is different, right? This is not just bad conduct. This is now criminal conduct. And granted, you know, look, he, he, he hasn't been convicted of anything. You know, there's not been a trial yet. But there's, there's more than enough for a responsible legislator uh, to say, you know, okay, we need to get, you know, help, sort of find out the facts here for real. We need to find out how deep this goes. It's something indicating that they're taking this seriously um, because it's not just the say-so of Michael Cohen. It's not even, I mean, not that I buy into this at all, but they can't even write this off as, you know, this politically motivated witch hunt because these are career prosecutors. I mean, this is an office that this is what they do every day, like other U.S. attorneys' offices around the country, and they do it with Democrats, and they do it with Republicans, and, you know, it, it just doesn't matter. Um, so, you know, and it's, it's in fact, a Republican-appointed, uh, you know, U.S. attorney. He's not personally involved because he's recused himself, but, you know, his, it's his hand-picked people who are overseeing this. Um, and and as, as you and I both noted, you know, you have, you have a federal judge uh, sort of adopting those set of facts that the government has put forth. You have, you know, already, uh, um, I won't yet call it a mountain, but a very large hill of proof implicating Trump. And I'm sure that, you know, would grow into a mountain. So you have all of, all of this in, and implicating him in a felony. And, and for the lawmakers who are the ones who write these laws, you know, pass these laws, uh, to say to essentially the prosecutors and, and the whole criminal justice system, well, you know, we're not, we're not really 
we don't really care about enforcement of those uh, because he's a good president and we like what he's doing now. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's beyond shocking. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't think I could be shocked anymore. But I think the important point to make to people is we've already gotten used to them turning a blind eye to his conduct, but this is more than just bad conduct. This really is now getting into criminal territory. There may be more, but we already see this and know this, and we need to expect more from lawmakers uh, in Washington. Yeah, you keyed in on, Mimi, on on the word that really... I think we should be using here. These people are lawmakers. And what a lawmaker is, is these are the people who write the laws that that everyone in this country, you, me, my clients, my friends, everyone is expected, all the listeners in this on this podcast, everyone is expected to abide by. There are prison, people who go to prison for violating these laws. Michael Cohen is going to prison for violating these laws. And they are telling the American people that they have no respect for the law whatsoever. And what they are saying is, we don't care that the president of the United States may have committed a crime. We don't care if the laws are respected, the laws we wrote and we passed. Uh, to me, it's, it's an absolutely appalling statement. And, you know, it's one thing for them to say, look, we want to let the criminal investigation run its course first. For them to say, well, you know, right. we, we need to learn more. But to say, I'm not curious at all. I don't want to learn more about the, the president potentially breaking the laws that we wrote and we passed on behalf of the American people. It is, it is beyond shameful. It is absolutely disgusting. It is un-American. It, it, is a, it is completely abdicating their duty as lawmakers and elected representatives, in my opinion. Um, well, completely agree with that. <laughs> well, Mimi, I I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it was to have you back on our podcast. Thank you so much for helping us break this down on short notice. Yes, it was incredible. No problem. This was fun. I uh, I feel like we could talk for hours about it, and we still wouldn't be done. So, <laughs> exactly. thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.